Now, my guest in today's episode is Coach Meg Ritchie Stone. Now, in this podcast conversation, we discuss Coach Stone's unique entry into the world of track and field. We talk a little bit about her development as an athlete and especially how she applied her analytical still her analytical skills to understanding the training of some of the other elite athletes who she began to come into contact with. And we see the early seeds of her development as a very successful strength coach and sports scientist. And we also talk about her perspective on what it was like to be the first division one female strength coach in America. Now, before we get into our guest for today, before I introduce her, I did want to tell you the reason and purpose behind starting this podcast. So if you're listening to this or if you're watching this, you might know of my sports science and strength science educational content on YouTube. And I really just needed a place for longer form educational content and interviews with people who I have the pleasure of meeting in the field, whether they are sort of the legends and giants who have come before, who we have the pleasure of following the path that they've paved into this amazing profession, or maybe up and coming younger innovators who are practitioners in the strength and conditioning field or sports scientists or uh, researchers. And so really just as an outlet for that longer form conversational content, but then also for things like Q and A's, or even for lecture topics that could go on a little bit longer than is suited for YouTube. And I also wanted to be able to provide real sports science education across multiple platforms, not just in video form on YouTube, but also wherever you listen to your podcasts. So I can't promise that I'll have a new episode every week or even every month, but when I do drop episodes, I'll publish them both on YouTube in video format, uh, as well as wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. I'll also take those longer conversations and take sound bites from them that are digestible and quick hitting. I find that sometimes when I want an answer to something or if there's a particular uh, topic that catches my interest, listening to a smaller sound bite from a longer conversation when I don't have time for the full thing can be beneficial. Now, it's important to know that the podcast is separate from my teaching appointment at Point Loma Nazarene University. However, it is sponsored in part by the Point Loma College of Health Sciences, as well as Good in Performance Systems. And you can check out links to both of those, as well as other sponsors and affiliates for this podcast, clicking on and then purchasing things from those links or signing up for subscriptions or even applying to be part of our program does help out both the channel and the show a lot. However, I would remind you that a true sports scientist and a true strength coach is not made by the equipment that she or he uses. When you're purchasing equipment, remember that you should only purchase it if it drives trust with your athletes, if it drives cohesion in your team, and ultimately accelerates the performance of your organization. Now, my guest in today's episode is Coach Meg Ritchie Stone. And if you've been around the field of strength and conditioning for any amount of time, you've likely heard of her as one of the preeminent legends in the field. Not only was she the first Division I NCAA strength coach who is a female, and you'll hear from her more on that in the episode, but she also still holds the NCAA record for the discus and the shot put until recently. Recently, the shot put record was taken down. Um, She has many other accolades as well, coaching athletes who have gone on to lengthy careers uh, in the professional sport world and international competition. And she is currently the director of the Center of Excellence for Sports Science and Coaches Education at East Tennessee State University, which she co-runs with her husband, Dr. Michael Stone. I had the pleasure of studying both under Meg and 
Dr. Stone while I was doing my graduate work at ETSU, and I learned many lessons from both of them. One of the things that I remember most about Coach Stone when I was at ETSU was that anytime she spoke on a topic that she was passionate about, and she's passionate about a good many topics within strength and conditioning and sports science, you would always leave not only feeling encouraged, but also admonished to be striving for excellence in even the small things. And so she was somebody who could take the hard sports science that we were learning in the classroom and really translate it into the practical, what do you do when you're interfacing with a coach, with an athlete, and how do you put, how do you put hands and feet to the uh, conceptual information that you're learning? Now, there were a few technical issues when recording this podcast. It was my first time setting it all up, so the sound quality isn't amazing and the video does cut out at one point, but thankfully, the entire conversation was preserved. So I hope that you will enjoy this conversation with Coach Meg Ritchie-Stone. I'm Dr. Jacob Gooden. I'm here with Meg Ritchie-Stone, our very first guest. We <laughs> wanted to start with the best, and so we brought her out. And just for context, we're here at the National NSCA Conference in New Orleans. So welcome to the podcast, Meg. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here, Jacob. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, it's an it's an honor to be able to sit down and talk. I feel like it's been a couple of years, you know, COVID kind of got in the way of us having more conversations sooner, but happy to sit down with you here. And, and Meg, what I really want to talk about today is um, your journey as an athlete and then how that morphed into your excellence and uh, uh, in the coaching world and some of the coaching accomplishment, uh, accomplishments that you've been able to mm -hmm. have. And so uh, I know a lot of our listeners will be well aware of, of some of your highest sporting achievements, which I'm sure you'll get to, but let's start back at the beginning. How did you get interested in sport in the first place? Well, like a lot of uh, young people, it happened through high school. And um, <clears throat> I remember sitting on the track in Scotland. I was about to run a relay, 13 years old, and my physical edu <clears throat> education teacher saying, um, Meg, what do you want to do when you're older? I said, oh, I want to compete in the Olympics because I had just watched the Tokyo Olympics in 1964 where Great Britain had been very, very successful. And I thought, I can do that. I could maybe do that someday. Um, so that's where my interest in sport really developed. I had some very, very good physical education teachers in Scotland, um, very enthusiastic and passionate. And really that just grew through high school. And then... Um, I went to a physical education college to become a physical education teacher. And at that point, I remember, oh, this was going back to about 1971, tell you how old I am. And um, I remember being at a competition. Our uh, college was competing against another college, and I was running the relay at that point, first leg on the relay, you know, and... And the, it was at the four by one. Four, the four by, two. by one, four yeah. By one. And the head, uh, the um, captain came over and said, "We need somebody to throw the discus." I said, "Points for the team. Where's the discus and what is it?" And the very first time that I threw the discus, I threw about 114 feet, and I was fortunate enough at that competition to be talent ID'd by our national coach. He was wow. there watching invited me along to a selected athletes course on that following Sunday. Uh, went along and then off and running. Um, he coached me for about two years, three years after that. 
And after that talent ID in 71, I found myself in the British team in 1973, not because I was such a wonderfully talented thrower. There was really nobody very, very poor at throwing at that time. And I, my first international was against Great um, East Germany. East Germany, yeah. okay. And that was a baptism by fire. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What was it like competing against those athletes? Was it, you know, because I'm sure you came in with your squad as well and the, the whole support staff around you. Was there mm -hmm. a difference? Could you tell a difference right away between the level of um, support that the athletes had or did it all come down to, to more the prowess of the individual athletes? Um, when we cut that fish international really brought it home to me um, and I'm going to talk about this tomorrow in the uh, uh, introduction to the conference um, there were some things that really came home to me in that at that period of time about strength and how important and valuable it is in the sport I was involved in but in any sport mm -hmm. really um, the amount when you saw a blue DDR t-shirt or um, tracksuit, it was game on. Mm. You weren't there in a recreational situation. It was game on. So the, their physical uh, yeah, preparation just outclassed everybody. Out, out, unbelievable. And everybody talks about the drugs with, the ET, with East Germany. That's the first thing that people come to mind. But, you know, you don't sit in a chair and look like these girls looked. Mm -hmm. You don't take a drug and just sit there. My interest was very much in what are they doing? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the program design? What's the volume load they're working at? How many throws are they doing in a session? What kind of weight training are they doing? Because obviously that whole system was geared towards the Olympic Games and competing and proving that East Germany were a wonderful country by showing how many medals they could win in the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the interest really mm. that I had. And several things happened that year that brought home to me how weak I was in throwing. And that if I was to be able to compete against these girls, I mean, my first international, I threw 54 metres. It was one in 68 metres. So, wow. so that gap, you, what oh, made up that difference? And your, your analytical mind, even at that period as competing, it sounds like you had the mind of a sports scientist. You were thinking, mm -hmm. what are the mechanisms that are allowing these girls to compete? Yeah. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the anabolics allow a, maybe a greater volume of training, maybe a, a greater mm -hmm. intensity, but there is still specific adaptations to the demands that they are yeah. putting on their bodies. And so, oh, and so what were those things? Um, when, you were, when you were competing and your, your mind was doing all of that um, detective work of trying to figure out, did you speak with the athletes or with the coaches yeah. or observe them? Well, I was very, very fortunate, uh, uh, Jacob, at that time because Frank Dick was my um, talent ID coach. Mm -hmm. He was the person that, that really brought me into the sport. And did he know that was your first time throwing when he saw you? Yeah. He did, okay. And he asked okay. me, he said, if you've thrown a discus before, I never knew, I just picked up and threw it. <laughs> um, and he, uh, he, like I say, talent ID'd me, but he was in the middle of researching his book at that point, uh, Sports Training. And if people don't know that book, they really should because it's. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll make sure to link that. In the it's comments. excellent book, 
1973, I heard this word that was being banded about called periodization. I'm like, what's that? Well, that's how, you know, the process that we all know that you put together your plan for the year or the quadrennium. Mm-hmm. And so Frank worked on a one, two or three peak year. And so, of course, if you were going a two peak year like I was, peaking for your indoor, peaking for your outdoor season, and how do you plan your programme? And it's interesting when you talk to some people when I came to the States, they were saying, well, you know, you got to look at what am I doing today and where am I going? And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you have to look at where you want to be right. and plan back. Oh, that's okay. So, you know, um, I was really lucky that the guy who was really interested in periodization and had a lot of contacts at the University of Leipzig where a lot was happening in East Germany. Um, so... That combined with looking at what are they doing? What are these girls doing? Squatting, pulling movements, clean, snatch were all a huge part of their programme. So I went back in 1973 and joined the weightlifting club at our national sports centre. In, in Great Britain? Yeah, um, in Scotland. In Scotland. Um, at our national sports centre in Meadowbank. And I can remember being in Meadowbank and watching. We had the Europa Cup. And we hosted the Europa Cup. And the Europa Cup at that time was the top eight countries in Europe competing against one another. And I wasn't selected for that competition, so I got an opportunity to sit back and kind of watch. And two of the Russian throwers came into the weight room when we were in there on open hours. And they started bench pressing. And it was Melnik and Chitsova. Chitsova was a world record holder in the shot. Melnik was a world record holder in the uh, discus. They started at 135 pounds. I'm going on because that's what I think Americans <laughs> understand. That's okay. About 60 kilos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 135, about six, seven reps, whatever. 225, four reps, 315, three reps. They went on and did a single at 375. Wow. And I thought, Meg, year 175 bench press is not cutting it. So the message came across strong and clear. You're not strong enough to do what you're doing. Get strong. So it took me about from 1973 right up until about 1984 when I uh, retired from throwing. 1983 was my best strength levels. Um, I cleaned 350, squatted 550, and benched 345. And, you know, Jacob was an overnight success. Only took me 12 years to get there. 12 years. <laughs> I, I hope everybody hears that. 12 years to reach. But, th- I mean, those are those are very high. Those are very elite levels of strength. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that process, did you, ha- did you map it out from the beginning? You know, I guess you were working on the quadrennium cycle, mm-hmm. right? Um, but did you say, okay, you see those levels of strength. Did you know at that time that it was going to take you 12 years? I didn't know when I started. I thought it would be, oh, the next Olympic. But no, um, it took me that long in order to build the strength to be able to throw 65 metres plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of strength levels that are needed. Mm-hmm. The young lady who won the Olympic Games last year, Val- Valerie Ullman, terrific terrific thrower um, 
again, she spent, she's, I watched her clean on video the other day, they're 275. So there is still, you know, mm -hmm. that high level of strength right. that's required mm -hmm. for that particular sport I was involved with. And, and I imagine it's, um, it's different for every athlete. It's not, it's not that every, every winner needs the most strength, but mm -hmm. there must be some threshold of strength. Absolutely. A threshold that enables optimal technique and the optimal uh, expression of power, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely, right on. I mean, she may not be over 300 in a clean, but her speed of release is mm. phenomenal. And mm. um, very, very quick in the circle. Um, very, you know, a very powerful thrower. Uh, and really has managed to use her genetics to her best. Yeah, yeah, that's phenomenal. I, I remember watching her compete and yeah. it, it, was, it was something. Yeah, she's, uh, she's a delight to watch. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, I want to hear a little bit more now, maybe first about some of your sporting exploits now because you haven't explicitly stated you know you said you threw over 65 meters yeah. I think. um and and what uh what uh, what meets did you throw that in mm. what were your some of your achievements there yeah oh, the one achievement i was very very pleased about was making the final because of course all these eastern bloc countries really dominated the women's throws and in moscow i was the only western um athlete in the final. Mm -hmm. It was all Bulgaria, Romania, Russia, East Germany, and me. And you. <laughs> um, and then in uh, a little later, in the very first World Championships in Helsinki in track and field, I made the final again and was seventh in the final. Mm -hmm. um, and felt quite good about that, that, um, that placing because, again, Eastern Bloc countries were, were dominating it. And really, um, and I think I had a lot to do, Jacob, being perfectly honest with you, with the way that women were not regarded as second, well, not second-class citizens, I don't want to say that, but women were expected to do hard work in mm. those countries. Wow. You know, if you go to East Germany or Russia in those times, you'd see women sweeping the streets, cleaning, doing manual labor. Mm -hmm. Being an engineer wasn't unusual if you were a woman mm -hmm. in those in Eastern Bloc countries. So um, it was expected that uh, there would be high levels of strength and to be able to throw far. But my most pleasant experience was in the Mount Sac relays in 82, I believe, 83. Um, I threw the British record. I threw mm. the NCAA Division One record that I still hold. Wow. And... Um, just the support that I got from the people at the University of Arizona, mm -hmm. phenomenal, phenomenal. I mean, there was never a negative feeling if I didn't compete just as well as I wanted to, but there was a phenomenal support unit. I mean, I can remember throwing 67 meters and them going nuts up in the stand. And one of the chaps who was a um, manager, they were laying bets on how far I was going to throw in that meet, you know, and it was just, just really awesome. support. And then afterwards, this big, tall gentleman came up to me and said, oh, congratulations on your throwing. Oh, thanks. Were you interested in joining my track club? And I said, well, actually, I'm, 
supported by Adidas and um, work with their club. But what is your club? I'm the Wilt Chamberlain uh, Track and Field Club. Wow. And, <laughs> and you could tell it was, um, yeah, must it was be Wilt okay. Chamberlain. He's about 10 feet tall, you know. So just little things like that that you remember about competing mm. that uh, really... You can remember when you're my age now and look mm. back on and say, God, I had some good times. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad I can say I also competed at Mountain Stack Relays. So that, that's cool. I can imagine it. <laughs> Although I was probably a few heats behind the other <laughs> heats that you might have been competing in in our mm. you know, um, respective events. Well, it was really interesting. A few years ago, they contacted me to put me in their Hall of Fame. And I was just like, hey, I'm over the moon because every year Mount Sack was a really special meet for me mm -hmm. because I competed there pretty well every year and I really enjoyed it, really did. There's something just about the environment that certain competitions bring, you yeah. know, and it's almost like, it, you know, the sports psychology piece, like you could be physically peaked, but your mind has to be in it too. And that's so important, like you say, the just the support staff around an athlete and if they're bought into it and they feel that support. And it's interesting, um, you know, you were talking about how some of these Eastern Bloc countries, they, they didn't view women as, as weaker than mm -hmm. men or, you know, incapable of doing the hard work. That's, that's something that I, you know, a majority of my students at PLNU actually are females. We have more, more uh, women than men there. And that's so nice. I love having the, the women in the class who want to become strength coaches. And I talk about you, of course. Um, and I think that's, it's starting to change. That mm -hmm. is starting to change in America where we're saying, yes, like, you know, let's get the girls in the weight room when they're young. And like with my daughter, you know, yeah. her to clean. Yeah. you probably remember yeah. me yeah. bringing her into the, uh, the into room. the weightlifting center. And, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, so that's really cool. Let's, let's transition a little bit now on that topic. Um, your transition from athlete, to coaching. Mm -hmm. um, what did that look like? Well, it's interesting you ask that, Jacob, because when I was in Great Britain throwing, before I came to the States, um, I would get up 7.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock, head into work, teach from 9 until 4.30. Um, I had a couple of teams that I was maybe basketball team or hockey team, um, coaching from 4 until 6. Mm -hmm. That's when my training day started at 6.30. 6.30 p.m.? P.m. P.m. And I'd head into start training at 7 with the weightlifting group or with the throwing group that I was part of. <clears throat> Not ideal. You know, if you want to make the Olympic Games, two hours at night's not going to cut right. it. So my coach and I talked and I'm, he said, you need to find some way... Well, you know, if you're a female thrower and you weigh 220 pounds or 30 pounds like I did, you don't get very many sponsorship mm. opportunities right. if you are, if you're a good looking sprinter that looks natty. Mm -hmm. um, so the only avenue really that I felt was open to me was to get a scholarship to the US. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to be out the back of it, Meadowbank, our sports centre, throwing the discus when a gentleman came up to me and said, uh, you interested in a scholarship to the US, 1979? And I went, preparation for Moscow, that would be great. Mm. So I said, okay, I'll come. 
And I was a British record holder at that time. And I remember I had my flight booked for the 9th of January, 1980. And I phoned him the week before. And he said, are you coming? You're definitely not coming. I said, of course I'm coming, yeah. I th don't think he and he felt how lucky he was to have the British record holder coming to his <laughs> school. Right. But it just, I was had to prepare for Moscow somehow. Yeah. And that, that was, I, I kind of mention it as, I was digging a hole in Great Britain and not getting where I wanted to go because I felt it was too negative and too cold weather and all mm. the rest of it. Well, when I got there, excuse me, um, when I got to my allergies, <laughs> when I got there to the US, Jacob, it was unbelievable. Three months, nothing different from what I was doing in Great Britain. I broke the British record five times in three months. Just because of the atmosphere, yeah. the ability to throw in heat mm -hmm. and to feel that unbelievable support. That that's when I decided, you know, when you're digging a hole for yourself, man, get out, make a move, challenge yourself. So I jump on a flight to the US, not knowing anybody, not even knowing who was gonna pick me up at the airport. Wow. But needed a change. Do it. Talk change. about a leap of faith. And mm -hmm. and also, I imagine you had a coaching change at that time then, mm -hmm. too? Yeah, well, so, the coach I was working with, I stayed with. Okay. He came out to visit me once a month. Okay. Once a month. Once a semester. Once a semester. Okay. So I saw him twice a year, and it was enough to top up and make me think about what am I doing technically. Gotcha. And it's not like you guys could necessarily video no, back and no. forth or, or it, email. No, it's right. interesting, you know, that the changes there's been in coaching. Marco Duco was an Italian um, visiting scholar we had about two years ago. And I watched him coach in Italy by Zoom from our weight room. And I'm thinking to myself, I wish we'd had that when I was coaching. Right, right. <laughs> he's got his, his, his discus thrower in the circle. She's mm -hmm. got her camera at the back. He's got a Zoom in the US. She's in Milan and he's coaching us. That's amazing. Yeah, if only you had Pregnant. had that. Once a semester, though. Hey, that's pretty good. Once a semester, was it? Yeah, right. Take notes when he comes. Yeah. That's amazing. And so, um, and so you were a physical educator, right? And mm -hmm. so the, teaching classes at what level again? Um, uh, well, high school. High school level, okay. Yeah. And then um, how did you go from there into being a strength coach? That's a, an interesting, well, at the end of my career in 1984, I competed in the Olympics in, the, in Los Angeles, came fifth. And part of the reason I think that I missed a medal was because of my focus had changed. Mm. As I was coming into the track and field season in April, uh, Larry Smith, who was the head football coach at the U of A, contacted me. He was looking for a strength coach. Several of the players had mentioned that they would like to maybe see me in there as the, as the coach. So and some he, of the football the football players said, yeah. oh, get Meg Stone in here. Yeah. Or, or Meg Ritchie. Was yeah, Meg Ritchie at that, at that yeah. time. Because you're in the weight room. And, you, you know, I'm lifting and I'm squatting and doing whatever. And they could see my strength levels. 
but there would maybe be a kid on the platform next to me and I'd think, God, that kid's going to kill himself doing that. So you kind of throw a coaching point out and right. just keep your back flat because your back is like, oh. Yeah, you don't want to overstep, but then you also think, oh, I'm responsible if yeah. this kid hurts himself because <laughs> yeah. I'm here. And you yeah. feel like, you know, I want to help the kid, but I don't want to step on the coach's toes, you know, but you're not going to hurt yourself. So... um I think through little incidences like that and then watching me in the weight room, it convinced him that maybe I could help. And uh, so he called me and he said, are you interested in strength and conditioning? And I'm like, well, I'm really, I'm the limited earnings coach in track and field at that mm. time, competing myself and doing a little bit of coaching with the, with the team. And I thought, I don't know. Well, he said to me, the hook. You know how you have to hook you. Yeah, you gotta hook you in. You realise that you would be the first female in the country doing that, and there's no other female doing it, and okay. you're the first. And I thought, mm -mm. so I did this immediate left turn into strength yeah. and conditioning. So he knew how your mind worked, and he knew he got that, me. Yeah, okay, he that achievement. Me. So he took me up into the uh, his office, and we talked, and he said. Um, can you put a program together? I said, sure. I said, your football team, you've got down linemen that are shot putt discus throwers. You've got a javelin thrower back there trying to throw the ball. You've got wide receivers that are sprinters. You've got guys, linebackers, and that are decathlete types. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I can put a program together for them. That's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. So um, that's really the way I started, Jacob, with our football team. I was really, really lucky because... Um, Larry Smith supported me. Cedric Dempsey, who was an AD at that time, very supportive. And three years after I was in the job, Larry Smith had um, offered a job at USC and later went on to become national champions. He was the head coach when they were national champions and very successful. But when he left, he, he, I didn't go with him. Mm -hmm. And I remember him saying to me, Meg, you've never been a coach in any sport unless you've been fired five or six times. I thought, thanks. What a great inducement, you know? Yeah, it's a good parting words. <laughs> and uh, Cedric Dempsey came down to me and he said, don't worry, your job's fine here. You're mm. okay. You'll be, whoever we bring in, you'll be okay. And it was interesting because the new coach that came in was Dick Tomey. And when he came down to my office, an interesting way of saying I support you he handed me 17 letters that other strength coaches had applied for my job. And he said, I think you need to answer these. Wow. <laughs> so he okay. said, I support you without saying I support you. Right. It was okay. a gesture. A gesture, And yeah. I thought, hmm, okay, I'm okay. That's one way of doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that must have felt good too, though, for him to show you those letters. And he probably knew, like, here's these very well-credentialed, strength mm -hmm. coaches but i'm gonna stick with the one i've got with meg ritchie yeah and and you know i wouldn't say that um my relationship was close because how you know the head football coach i don't think you ever are close to the head coach because right. you're working for them mm -hmm. but i would say for seven years we made it work pretty yeah. well and the very last game that i coached um with the University of Arizona um, was against Miami in the Fiesta Bowl and we beat them 
29 nothing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And we also had the Desert Swarm defense, best defense in the country at that time. So nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're not doing as well at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So I love, I love how you said you found the analogous positions in track and field. And again, that's kind of going back to that, that mind of a coach, the mind of a sports science mm -hmm. a scientist. And you're saying, okay, what are the needs? What are the mm -hmm. key performance indicators maybe of, of each of these different positions, right? Mm -hmm. So your wide receivers, well, they need max velocity training and and yeah definitely some change of direction but mm. they need to break free of the defense mm -hmm. right um javelin thrower for the <laughs> for the oh, quarterback God, yeah. that's amazing <laughs> that's awesome so what were what were some of the biggest challenges that you think you faced uniquely as the first female strength coach um it's interesting because johnny parker and i who was a strength coach at new england for years and had several of our football players that were drafted by New England. Um, we did a, a roundtable about three, four years ago, and someone asked me that from the audience about being a female strength coach, and Johnny just jumped in and said, Meg Stone, or Meg Richards I was then, was never a female strength coach. She was a coach who just happened to be female. That's awesome. And I thought... I love that. I love, and then same, I love that. I never, and I had never ever in all the time that I've been coached and thought of it in those terms. But yeah, it was right. Mm -hmm. You know, you just got in there. Okay, here's the job. Here's the challenges we've got. Um, here's where we need to go. And, you know, with a football team, I'm looking at there's three lifts we're all going to do. Bench, squat and clean. And then we'll branch out into the subsidiary type lifts that we'll add to, depending on your position. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that was my mindset. How do I put the, the program together? How do I do the best job I can? And it never dawned on me that I was female. I was in the process of putting something together that could really enhance the performance of this football team. Mm. And it was really interesting. The very first time that I was in the meeting, with the football team, Coach Smith said to me, you know, say a few words, Meg. I said, I've only got a few words to say. I'm going to try and make your football team as strong as I am. And they all started to laugh and clap and all there the rest go. of it. And I, I, I think that kind of hooked them. Yeah, yeah, that's a mic drop moment. You drop the <laughs> mic after you say that. So I, I, I want to hear this story from you because Doc always tells it, or he told it in a few of our classes. Um, uh, he, he told us a story of a time where one of the players was maybe giving you some lip about, uh, he's giving some pushback, maybe about the, I, I don't remember if it was the load that was on his bar or something like that. And then you had a response to him. Do you know the story I'm talking about that he tells? I can't remember. There were several of them. <laughs> There's a few of them. Um, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what Doc has said and we'll see. If I can, if I can so verify it. What he said, yeah, is that um, I think they were squatting and one of the athletes was was maybe giving you some pushback about hey like there's too much weight on the bar i can't i can't squat this you knew as a coach he was ready for it mm -hmm. um i don't know if you guys were maxing that day or something like that and um i think it was 450 or 500 and he was giving you pushback i'm no i'm not going to do it it's too much and you looked him in the eye and you got under the weight yourself and squatted his load no warm-up you just got in and you <laughs> squatted it in front of the team mm -hmm. and then racked it and you looked, and then he said, "Okay, I'll do it." <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, 
and that was my first year of coaching. Um, but there was a few times that coaches challenged, um, not coaches, uh, players challenged me. You know, mm. I remember very first year <clears throat> that I got the job, one of the football players said to me, uh, you're going to have a really hard time being a female working in this, you know, you're going to have a hard time with us. I said, well, half the team seem to want me. Maybe the other half are kind of sitting on judgment and waiting to see. Mm-hmm. I said, but you know what? If I'm going to have a hard time, you know, wouldn't it be, you know, I'm going to be here a year. I've got at least a year contract. If you give me a hard time, I can give you a worse time. So mm-hmm. why can't we just call it quits? Yeah, and get call on the truth. Yeah. yeah. And let's just get on with doing the job. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. no, that, that seems reasonable. It. You said a couple times to focus on the task mm-hmm. at hand. You focus on the job and you do the job well. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, female, male, strength coach, whoever, if you're doing the job well and you focus on that task with your athletes, uh-huh. that things seem to line up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you can't go into the weight room thinking I'm, I'm, I'm a female and I'm not wanted or I'm not. That, all that nonsense needs to go out the window. It's just, here's the job. How can I do it as well as I possibly can? And I think um, I think we've come a long way. Mm-hmm. I think females in the weight room, you know, people like Andrea Hardy and people like mm-hmm. that are doing great jobs in the weight room. So we've come a long, long way. Um, I think the thing that um, worries me most, Jacob, to be honest with you, is the relationship between the strength coach and the head coach mm-hmm. of a sport. We're still a long way from compatibility there. Right. Um, and that's one of the things that concerns me most about our profession, is that we're not talking oranges. We're talking oranges and they're talking apples. Right. And um, the education of the, of the sport coach is concerning because we definitely, as strength and conditioning coaches, our coach's education programme has come Oh vastly different than it was in 1970 mm-hmm. or 1980. I mean, you know, people have done phenomenal jobs and that's that's why I'm so proud of the programme that we have at ETSU because in that programme, people have gone out and the tentacles have spread throughout the whole of the US so that you're producing good strength coaches, well-educated. Tim Sukamil is producing... Guy Hornsby is producing. We, you know, our kids are out there and that coach's education programme is just growing. And eventually, I think, within the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see the well-educated coach get rid of the grunt coach mm-hmm. who got into it because he played whatever. Right, you know? right. So it's going to be less of that sort of, oh, I was a good athlete and mm-hmm. I had a connection, so I got an internship. Yeah, uh, more of the formal education where, hey, you know, this person understands physiology and mm-hmm. biomechanics and they have that experience. In yeah, the way, right. That's that's amazing. Mm. Um, and that that brings me to one thing I was really interested to talk to you about today was um, just that whole idea of coach education and advancing that, especially here in the U.S. Mm. Um, you know, I learned so much under you and under Dr. Stone in the ETSU program. 
And I get a lot of questions now just because I, I put all, all of my teaching out on my YouTube channel. And, and, you know, that's a really fun way to engage with students around the world who are studying to take the CSCS test or to mm -hmm. um, level up their coaching skills and abilities in, in a formal way, more of an academic way as well. Mm -hmm. And they often ask me, you know, what can I do to... Um, like maybe they're from India or they're from, you know, Pakistan and they don't they don't have a graduate program mm -hmm. yet. Um, a lot of them are wanting to maybe come to the U.S. and they ask for recommendations. I always recommend ETSU. I recommend Point Loma. Mm -hmm. um, but what would you say are some of those keys to improving the level of coach education in strength and conditioning? Mm -hmm. And then uh, maybe this is a second question. So improving that, and then how can we get on the same wavelength as the head coaches, yeah. and to get that relationship, um, uh, you know, to meet to make it more uh, mutually beneficial. Um, you're asking the key, <laughs> a really difficult question there, um, and maybe I can be as honest as I possibly can with you, uh, Jacob. It's very, very difficult. <clears throat> I was a coaching manager at the USFC for a while. And that's when it was brought home to me how split this situation is between the sport coach and the strength and conditioning coach. I don't believe there is any route through the USOC mm. or the IOC or um, NGBs. They're okay. all political organizations. So the national governing bodies, the state-run programs it's too political too put far too political let me let me tell you something that i might get into trouble for saying this but i don't care i'm going to say it anyway i'm known to be a little controversial at times when i was a coaching manager at the usoc two national coaches and myself got together and we decided we were going to have a coaches a head coaches of olympic teams we were going to try and form a coaches association we had the Red Roof in Colorado Springs all booked. We had an agenda already. It went before the executive director of the USOC at that time for approval. I did not get my approval. They turned it down and said, no, we can't do that. And on the agenda was coaches' education, obviously, mm. you know. Yeah. I said, why? I went to my boss, why? why is the reason that he was, gave me was the upper echelons of the USOC think that this would be too, the, the coaches association would be too strong, mm. too, well, too strong a voice. That told me we yeah. are political. That's where their priorities were. They mm -hmm. wanted to control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Power. Okay. Power. So that, that convinced Dr. Stone and I when we were talking build the ETSU program. It may take 20, 30, 40 years, but coaches education will get out through one individual program, spawning half a dozen different programs, mm -hmm. get the tentacles out there and get that uh, coaches education into the, you know, make it mainstream mm -hmm. that you have to know physiology in order to coach. You have to know why, whether you're an aerobic or anaerobic sport. Because you know, Jacob, and Dr. Stone says this a lot in his lectures, when you walk into the weight room, the first thing you're doing when you make an athlete move is changing their physiology. Right. Whether it be 
muscle physiology, cardiophysiology. What you're doing is physiologically changing someone's body to be able to compete at a different level. Yeah. So they have to know physiology. You also have to know the psychology of that athlete. Mm -hmm. And so all those ologies are so important. The ologies are important, the <laughs> science. That's a, I, I love what you said just right there and, and what Dr. Stone says as well is, is when you train an athlete, you're quite literally just, you're changing their physiology. And, and I think we take that too lightly. Oh, you yeah. know, we, we just say, oh, anyone who looks good can be a trainer or anyone who has mm -hmm. abs can be, a, you know, a coach <laughs> or anyone who is an athlete can go into the weight room and mm -hmm. because they were coached, now they can coach people, but they don't understand the physiological ramifications, the mm -hmm. psychological ramifications, oh, and it might not be apparent immediately. But if you look at just those small differences in trajectory down the road, it could be the difference at the very least in performance levels, mm -hmm. right? Maybe making Absolutely. the team or not, or, or the podium mm -hmm. or not. And in the worst cases, we've seen, unfortunately, a few times, um, it could be the difference between hospital, hospitalization mm -hmm. for an athlete and, and, you know, still being able to compete. One thing that I said a few, a few weeks ago at the Summer Strong um, conference I was at is, we have got to realise the responsibility that we have as a strength coach, just what you're talking about. And do you realise, as a strength and conditioning coach, and I said this at a, a conference I was at, that you will put a programme together and a young man will run himself into the hospital doing the programme that you've put together. Do you realise the responsibility that is? because that young man wants to be, or young lady, wants to be as good as they can in their sport, that they're prepared to run themselves into the hospital. Mm -hmm. So educate yourself. And I'll quote Dr. Stone, as you've probably heard him on many occasions, don't do stupid stuff. Don't do stupid stuff. <laughs> that's a good takeaway. <laughs> but you have to know what the stupid stuff is, and that's where Absolutely. the education comes into play. Absolutely. And, and I'll just say too, you know, Myself, I, I feel like at Point Loma, of course, we have Brent Alvar, the current NSCA president from, I guess, a, a different lineage, you could say, of mm -hmm. mentors. Um, but then when I was hired there, I was able to be one of those tentacles you spoke about mm -hmm. and to start an athlete monitoring program and and to mentor the the grad students who came in and then our strength coach actually went through the program himself and mm -hmm. and uh, got to learn under Dr. Alvar and myself and, and now we have a student run athlete monitoring program where Great. you know and, and I don't have to actually go to all the sessions anymore <laughs> the testing sessions at 6am um, and, and that's you know thanks to that single singular program at ETSU like you said making it mainstream mm -hmm. um, that's awesome that was one of the things that uh, Doc was very adamant about that in many exercise science or sports science women programs that call themselves sports science but really aren't you um, in that program have got to be able to merge the practical with the theory. Um, you know, many, many programs you'll go to, you'll sit in class for a semester, mm -hmm. then you'll go off and try and find an internship, do your internship, then you're back in the classroom for another semester. He was very, very adamant about merging the two, mm -hmm. that you're in the classroom, you're applying what you learn in the classroom in a practical situation in the afternoon with your team. You're coming back into the classroom, you've got enough 
practical experience with the theory to be able to discuss it in class. Yeah. What you're doing with your team, what you're not doing. Um, and that, 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 I think, is the uniqueness of what Doc brought to the program at ETSU. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I've seen other programs trying to copy that, too, um, you know, with the best of intentions. And, and I think people see that at ETSU and it, and it gets the wheels turning. It makes them realize, OK, we have to be giving our future generation of strength coaches. We can't just give them the theory, because on the one hand, you have the sort of the gym rat who just grows up in the gym with no formal education. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you have kind of the science geek. Right. And I'm using those terms loosely. Nobody no, get offended, no, hopefully. But no. um, you really need to be both. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to have that experience and the analytical mind to apply the concepts and understand mm -hmm. the physiology. That That's something that I always tell uh, students who are interested in that program. I say the, the benefit of ETSU um, are twofold. One is the amazing faculty, just the experience, obviously a lifetime of experience in strength and conditioning and sports science. And number two, it's the way that you are thrown into the deep end, but with the scaffolding to be successful, mm -hmm. right? Because those PhD students who are maybe second or third year, they're guiding the master students. Mm -hmm. They're teaching them peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning. Uh, you're going to class, then you're going to the weight room, then you're going to class, then you're collecting data, then you're, you know, analyzing GPS data or supervising mm -hmm. isometric mid-thigh pulls and you're doing all of it. You're, you, and you get that experience and you can leave saying, uh, you know, I coached at, a, at the division one level. Maybe it was one team, maybe it was two teams, but you had that experience and to see teams through a full quadrennial cycle, cause you get to see freshmen come in yeah. and you see them graduate as seniors and maybe a super senior if they redshirt it mm -hmm. um, and I don't I don't think you get that at no. very many other programs maybe not any yeah I think I think you're right Jacob you know and you know not not that I'm blowing smoke here or not but we've been very lucky to have people like yourself go through the program I mean Thank really you. it's uh, it's the the level of intellect and curiosity and creativity of some of the people that have come through our program has been remarkable, mm. really, and been a pleasure to work with people like that, that want to be better. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a desire and a passion there to be as good as it can be. Right. Um, that's, that's, that's been the um, shining light of our program, is yeah. to have people out there that are doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to thank you for that. Oh. Well, you're welcome. And then thank you for being for letting me be a part of that. It's been special. Well, I think that uh, we're, we're getting near on time, but I just want to reiterate that that's part of the beauty of like these conferences where we get to come together, you mm -hmm. know, and, and all of those tentacles come back together <laughs> and we can, you know, co-mingle again. And and it's been it's just been great catching up with you, Meg. And mm. I look forward to your talk tomorrow which you said you were prepping it uh, as you came in or going over your notes. I know you've done a lot of preparation, but I'm looking forward to that. Um, if you, if you had any, um, one word of it, of advice, succinct, mm -hmm. am I saying that word correctly? Succinct <laughs> advice for the upcoming strength and conditioning professional. Think mm -hmm. of a young person, you know, maybe a grad student or something. They want to be a strength coach or a sports scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, what would be your single piece of advice for them? I think a um, couple of things. Um, be brave, be determined, be passionate about what you want to do, and uh, just really 
commit yourself to learning and commit yourself to the to the area this hugely impactful um profession that we're part of honor the profession and do it well mm. that's good that's mm -hmm. good and now a quick word from each of our sponsors. We have PLNU for kinesiology and sports science education, Evolve AI for strength training and powerlifting apps, Hawken Dynamics for force plate technology, and Into the AM for the most comfortable and best fitting t-shirts. Now, as I said in the intro, this podcast is not directly affiliated with Point Loma Nazarene University, although I am employed there and I do have my main teaching appointment there. However, the College of Health Sciences has been gracious enough to donate a bit of space for me to record this podcast in occasionally, although currently it's under construction, which is why if you're watching the video, I'm currently in my office. However, a lot of the equipment as well, this camera, some of the microphones have also been purchased by the university and I use them in my teaching, but I'm allowed to use them for this podcast as well. Most importantly, it's through Point Loma that I've been able to establish a teaching presence and to build an athlete monitoring program that can impact athletes where I can also mentor students. So be sure to check out the links below to either our traditional undergraduate four-year program where you can get a degree in kinesiology, uh, more specifically in either applied health science or health and human performance. Uh, or pre-allied health. Depending on the degree you choose, you can go into a number of movement fields such as athletic training, physical therapy, physician's assistant, sports science, strength and conditioning. We really have something for everyone in the movement sciences. And then on the graduate side, we have a whole host of graduate programs. The ones that I specifically teach in are the sports performance program, as well as uh, I sometimes have athletic training students who are part of the athletic training program, but they take my course as an elective. And then we also have a sports management program as well and a fully online integrative wellness program. So check out the links, let them know that Dr. Gooden sent you. Our next sponsor is Evolve AI. Now I'm directly affiliated with Evolve AI as the chief scientific officer for that company. I also use Evolve AI in my daily training. What it is, uh, is essentially a mobile application that creates for you a bespoke training program to get you as strong and as big as you want to become. It's really for everyone, not just for powerlifters, although it is geared towards and centered around powerlifting training. Evolve AI uses an expert system form of artificial intelligence to create for you um, an entire program, a training program that's that uh, builds upon your weaknesses, that capitalizes on your strengths, and adapts with you using auto-regulation based on your biofeedback that we gather with questionnaires. The Evolve AI team consists of myself and also some other very talented individuals uh, who are much more impressive than I am, especially in terms of athletic accomplishments. So we have Garrett Blevins as the CEO, and then uh, some members of our team, Kristen Dunsmore, John Hack, and Andy Huang. If you're familiar with the powerlifting space, you probably know those names. And then, of course, legendary coach Mike Tushira. So if you want to check out this app for free for two weeks, get an entire training program that is fit just to you for your strengths and weaknesses dependent on your goals, head down to the link in the description to do just that. The next sponsor is Hawken Dynamics. Now, if I had to choose just one piece of sports science equipment, it would be the Hawken Dynamics Force platforms. They were my first uh, capital purchase when I was starting up the athlete monitoring program here at Point Loma. And really, if I didn't have anything else and just had Hawkins force plates, I think you could get very far 
with just that. They are robust, they are highly portable, they're easy to use. The user interface is always being upgraded. There's always new features um, that really uh, address pain points in the uh, sports science, applied sports scientists, or the strength coaches workflow. So they're very in tune with what the field needs and the customer service is world-class. Like if you have a question, you reach out to one of the team members, they're getting back to you literally within minutes. I can't recommend them highly enough. So check out the link in the description if you are interested in getting some force plates or if you just want to reach out and see what their options are. The next sponsor is Into the AM. And if you're anything like me, you struggle with what to wear when you're not wearing your work clothes or your gym clothes. It's like, what do you wear in between? And for me, I just like plain t-shirts. I mean, plain, comfortable, well-fitting t-shirts, really go with anything and you can wear them underneath anything else if you need to dress them up or just on their own with a pair of jeans if you want to look casual and into the am provides just that now they do have some amazing graphic tees that you can check out if you like uh, to show off more of the artistic and colorful side uh, if you want to keep things a little bit more low-key though they have uh, absolutely plain shirts that are comfortable and they look good and they're well fitted um, or some basic t-shirts that have a nice little subtle logo on them just for a little bit of styling as somebody who works out frequently i like my shirts to be a little bit fitted because you know it's like i want to look good in them because i've been working out in the weight room in order to continue to look good not i mean not a hundred percent but i am a little bit vain and so into the am uh, those shirts are just that they're just perfectly fitted on top without being too snug through the midsection in case you're bulking you have a little bit of a power belly going um, but they're great. So check them out. Use the code GOODIN10 for 10% off. And again, the link is in the description. Now, the last sponsor really isn't a sponsor because I'm not directly affiliated with them in an official sense, but I do want to shout out the NSCA in this podcast just because of all of the work that they're doing to elevate the strength and conditioning profession. A lot of the resources that I use come from their textbooks. I teach out of their textbooks as well. So I've linked to those in the description as well. If you're interested in pursuing a certification such as the CSCS or CPSS, I hold both of those certifications um, and those links are down in the description for you as well. So check that out if you want to up your coaching game. Of course, I have resources to help you study for some of those tests and to learn the material and apply it more importantly. And remember that any purchase that you do end up making does help out the channel. Just consider whether it's something that you actually need, something that you actually want to invest in before you do it, because your time and your resources are important, and I want you to steward those well. Now, thank you for sticking with me through the ad roll. And with all that said, thank you guys for watching this video. I'll see you on the next one or talk to you in the next podcast.